to the Smart Connector podcast, which looks at the power of connection in business and life. Featuring solo episodes as well as a range of exciting interviews with entrepreneurs across multiple sectors, we offer tips and advice to build your impact, wealth and success, attract others for all the right reasons, and become a Smart Connector, the architect of your amazing business and life. interview with Brian Clayton, the co-founder and CEO of tech business GreenPal, an online marketplace that connects homeowners with local lawn care professionals. GreenPal has been called the Uber for lawn care by Entrepreneur Magazine and has over 100,000 active users. It has an annual turnover of $20 million and is experiencing 100% growth year on year. Before he founded GreenPal, Brian started and grew a local landscaping business to over $10 million in revenue before it was acquired by Lusa Holdings in 2013. With decades of entrepreneurial experience behind him, Brian is passionate about inspiring other entrepreneurs to start and scale their business. And in this interview, we talk about many of the lessons, values and philosophies that lie behind his success. Welcome to today's episode. I have a very exciting guest for you today, Brian Clayton. Welcome. It's great to have you here with us, Brian. Jane, thanks for having me on the show. It's great to be here. Yeah, so you're all the way across the pond, as they say, in Tennessee, right? That's right. That's what I am. Born and raised yeah. Tennessee. Yeah, amazing. Down in the deep south. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> So, Brian, you've got a great story, haven't you, of entrepreneurial success. You started a lawn mowing business at age 16 and you grew it to over $10 million in revenue, which is just a fantastic achievement. So we're going to get into that today. And we're also going to talk about your, I know you're a fitness enthusiast, you're particularly keen on martial arts, and you're very passionate about inspiring entrepreneurs to start and grow a business. So we're going to get into all of those topics. And I'm really looking forward to our discussion. So let's get into it, Brian, and, and tell us how did it all start? How did you come to start this lawn mowing business at age 16? What inspired you to do that? Yeah, you know, I'd like to tell you that I was uh, self-sufficient enough to come up with the idea myself. But the truth is, I was forced into entrepreneurship by my father. He made me go mow the neighbor's grass one day. He said, get off your butt. You got a gig. You're going to go cut the neighbor's grass. And and luckily, <laughs> yeah, luckily he did that because something about that just stuck with me. I made 20 bucks for an hour's work and and I didn't have to hassle my parents for money and, and anymore. And that was nice. And so I remember the first thing I did after I got done mowing the, the neighbor's grass, I made up some flyers and passed them all around the neighborhood. And by the end of that first summer, I had something like a dozen customers. And I just stuck with that little lawn mowing business all through high school and all through college and paid my way through college cutting grass. And when I graduated college, I had to make a decision. Was I going to go into the job market and take a pay cut or just stick with this lawn mowing business? And I decided to write a business plan and, and, and over a 15-year period of time, ended up building one of the largest landscaping companies in the state of Tennessee where I live. And a lot of bumps along the journey, but ended up learning how to build a business from scratch and got it over eight figures in revenue. And in 2013, that company was acquired by one of the largest landscaping companies in the United States. So that kind of set me on my entrepreneurial journey, my dad forcing me to cut my first yard. 
Yeah, it's such an amazing story because so many kids are forced by their parents to go and get jobs because we all think that it's good for our children and we want them to go and do babysitting or, or cut the lawn or do some some fairly menial and easy job that gives them some idea of what it's like to earn their own money. But very few of them actually stick with the same thing and go on to build a business around it. So can I just ask you, Brian, what did you study when you were at university? Yeah, you know, it, to your point, you know, it's great. Go get a job. That's fine. But if you can really teach your kids when they're young to to understand what entrepreneurship is and understand that you can be in control of your own destiny. You can be in control of your path through life and that business ownership can be the thing that that causes you to make something of yourself. And it certainly has been the case for me. And 99% of what I've learned about business has just been doing business. You know, I studied, I got a degree in business administration in college, but I'll be honest, you know, a lot of the stuff you learn in school doesn't really apply to getting a small business going from scratch. You know, when you think you learn in business school, you know, might apply to big business, being an executive somewhere, but that game is very different than trying to make your first $100,000 a year in revenue in your small business or your first million dollars a year in revenue in your small business. So it was kind of funny when I was in college, I was just like always baffled that the things they were teaching us in school about marketing and even accounting and all these different things really didn't apply to the journey of getting my business going and I kind of had to learn it on my own. And, and that was back in the late 90s, early 2000s. These days, you, you, know, you no longer have to go it alone. There's YouTube and podcasts and all sorts of things you can get your hands on to learn this stuff. But back then, there was no stuff like that. There was no, there was no podcast like this one. So tell me, Brian, did you have any role models or anybody who inspired you to not just start your business, but also grow it? Because it's tough, isn't it, in the early days? Yeah. Did you have anybody to turn to? Yeah, really tough. So for me, I was lucky because I was in the lawn mowing business. And and back then, lawn mowing was something that successful people, wealthy people, fluent people could have the discretionary income to afford to pay for. Nowadays, you know, with apps like like the one I have now, it's more affordable. But back then in the 90s, early 2000s, it was more or less something that affluent people would pay for, that, that kind of service. My point being is I had all sorts of customers that were successful in some sort of fashion, many doctors, lawyers, things of that sort. But, I, but there were several business owners. And I saw that these people were no smarter than I was. Not that I'm partic- particularly bright, but these people weren't, didn't have anything that I didn't. And they had just taken a little bit of risk and worked really hard over a long period of time. And from what I could, from my perspective, they were living the good life. You know, they, they had the nice cars, the nice houses, the swimming pools, the vacations, the, the, the means to send their kids to school anywhere they wanted to, the means to buy time to pay me to cut their grass. And I saw that and was exposed to that at a very young age. And that always stuck with me. So I guess you could say a lot of my early kind of inspiration and mentors were a few handful of customers that I had. And then as time went on, as I grew the business, I, I was able to, to tap into other resources to learn from. And I'll tell you, especially the last 10 years, YouTube University has been a lot, of, a lot of my source of mentorship, I guess you could say asynchronously, meaning people mentor me through content they're putting out and they don't even know who I am. And that's the beautiful thing about learning how to build a business these days is you don't have to like tap somebody on the shoulder and take them to lunch. You can learn everything that they, that they know just through stuff that they're putting out on their podcasts and their YouTube channels. 
Yeah, I think it's just so powerful, isn't it? Whether you have the money to afford one-to-one mentorship from the top people that you'd really like to surround yourself with, it's actually not a barrier today because you can still you can still surround yourself with them. You can be in their company, exactly. can't you? Which is the it's the beauty of podcasting and and YouTube and all of this content creation that we 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 really enjoy. I think all of us exactly. Amazing. So, yeah. So, Brian, would you would you say that being in Tennessee in in your particular area was it was it very important for you to actually stay in that area, or did you think of taking your business national? I mean, I know obviously you've got your app now, but how easy was it to start a local business in your area compared to other areas? And was the the, the local issue something that was relevant? Great question. You know, I think a lot of times where you live can be an important aspect to the trajectory of your life. And for me, you know, a blue collar business like a lawn mowing landscaping business, I was in a really good place, really good part of the country. Middle Tennessee around the Nashville area is booming and growing, has been for the last 30 years. And so when your local economy is vibrant and growing and you have a small business of really almost any sort, it just kind of like all like rising tide lifts all boats. And for me, there was new shopping centers, new apartments, new commercial office parks, new opportunities for me to service new clientele. And so like, I guess I got lucky in a sense that I was exposed to that and grew up in that sort of environment. Had I had grown up, you know, 60 minutes further outside of town in a smaller town and never left, I, my life would have been very different. I wouldn't have had the opportunities that I had building that company. So for me, I was very lucky to be a part of a growing marketplace that I could kind of take part in. And I guess that's, that's advice that I have is if you are going to want to start a small business, it can be helpful to go to a place that's growing and you kind of like grow with the town. On the other hand, you know, I see a lot of folks in really big cities, maybe like London, New York, LA, Miami, that are already so entrenched and already so established, it's hard to break into those little local marketplaces. And so it's kind of like a sweet spot, in my opinion. You know, if you're going to be coming up from, the, from nothing from scratch, it can be helpful to go to a place that's, not small, but not huge. So I guess right place, right time. Yeah, very lucky. Very, very lucky. And, and not that that was like the the reason why I was able to build a successful company, but it was kind of the thing that without it, nothing, no matter how hard I worked, I wouldn't have been able to do what I did. So it was that combined with a lot of hard work a lot of, and a lot of luck. Yes. So the, we'll talk about the hard work in a minute because you you posted something interesting on Twitter that caught my eye this morning about that. But first of all, I just wanted to ask you about the early days because a lot of my audience are early stage entrepreneurs. They're just they're either starting up a business or they're just in the foothills of its growth. So I know that those can be really tough times. So I'd love to hear about some of your lessons. From those early days, if you can pass anything on, any wisdom, any of your experience and, and inspiration. Yeah, it's uh, the first year, two, three, four years of starting a business from scratch are, are the hardest. Every, you know, I think everybody knows that, but I think a lot of the grind and slog comes down to expectations. And we think it's going to be easier. We think it's going to be faster. We feel like it should be going better. And, and that's what causes a lot of kind of like the cognitive dissonance, I guess you could say. And 
one of my favorite quotes is by a guy by the name of Charlie Munger, who is Warren Buffett's right hand man. And he says, you know, the first hundred thousand is a B I T C H is just the hardest. It's the hardest part of the journey and do whatever you can do to get that first hundred thousand. And whether it be in sales or, you know, or profit or however you measure it. And then the rest can come after that. And so for, for me, like, you know, 20 years of business, it certainly has been that been the case. You know, the first three or four years of starting my landscaping company were the hardest. The first three or four years of starting Green Pal, which is my current company, were the hardest. And you're going to just have to stick it out. You're going to have to set small goals, hold yourself accountable to knock down those goals and rinse and repeat. And it's a seven-day-a-week thing. It really is, especially particularly the first two or three years. And it's, it's, and it's everything. It's like, it's like your entire life's force is you're throwing it into this business. Another quote I like is from Mark Cuban. He says, the least you can live on, the greater your options. And so that means, you know, if you're starting a business from scratch, you got to maybe sell the car and buy, buy a clunker. You got to maybe downgrade the apartment or downgrade the condo or the house. You got to, like, click clip coupons. You got to like take your daily, you know, your monthly expenses and chop them in half because you're going to have to put every dime that you can get your hands on by any means necessary back in the business. And so I think, I think that gets glossed over a lot. A lot of people don't really understand that, that getting a business going from scratch is a full contact sport. It's seven days a week, your personal life and your business life, the uh, like, are one, there is like, there is no line between the two. And that's been the case for me, you know, building two businesses from scratch that's over eight figures. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of wisdom in what you say. And I totally agree that a lot of people seem to think that it's going to be easy. They think that they can they can have their evenings and their weekends and their lifestyle and everything else and that it's just going to fall into place. And it just, I, I totally agree with you. You have to be all in. And what that does mean is that, there are sacrifices, aren't there? There, are. there really are. And, and certainly you can have that good balance and that nice, that nice lifestyle, you know, year four, five, six, seven, eight, depending on, you know, how lucky and good you are. But the first the two, three, four years, it just doesn't happen. And the thing I also see is people get into starting a business because they hate their job and they hate having to work so hard in their job. So they think, okay, I'm going to start a business because it'll be easier. And what they don't realize is that they're going to be working two and three and four times harder for half the money for a very long time. And so that's just the reality of it. That's what it takes to get into the game. And in the end, it's worth it. You know, a decade later, it's worth it. And you'll be glad you did it. But I try to like be as realistic as I can with telling people how the first three or four years is going to go. That way they can stick it out and, and become successful. Yeah, you know, that's just so powerful. And as you were talking, I was thinking, I was thinking this is going to be really fantastic advice for some of my listeners, because I think it's important just to have that to know that that is what it takes, or that can be what it takes. And of course, it doesn't mean that you can't start a business if you're not in the position to put in those seven days a week, or, you know, work evenings or make those sacrifices or put in money of your own. But what it does mean is that it's going to take longer. And that means that you're going to be in that early stage place for longer than you'd like as well, doesn't it? Yeah. If you can manage your expectation going in and know that, you know, just rough numbers, for example, like you can say, okay, I have a job right now that's paying me 
$75,000 a year. And I know that I'm going to go into business in the first two or three years, maybe even four years, I'm only going to make 30. But then year four, five, six, seven, and eight, you know, maybe even by year 10, I can be pulling down a million dollars a year. I'd rather be in that game than than stuck in the game of of working for some big company and and just have like a linear progression of a of a little pay raise every year. I'd much rather be in charge of my own my own destiny. And that's the difference and I think a lot of it is is managing your, your short-term expectations and and short-term sacrifices for the for the long term. It's hard to do. It takes a lot of faith, takes a lot of hard work. So how important would you say it is, Brian, to have the right people around you along the journey? I think a lot of, uh, you know, the, the adage of, you know, show me your, your five friends, I'll show you your future is true. You, you really do need to be hanging out with people who think like this. Because when, if you are crazy enough to do this sort of thing and start your own business, I promise you nobody's going to get it. Your family's not going to get it. Your girlfriend or boyfriend or wife or husband are not going to get it unless you're really lucky. Most of the friends you have are, aren't going to get it. And so you're really going to be going it alone because they're not going to see it. They're not going to understand how hard you're working and, and because they're not doing it. And you really can be helpful to start hanging out with people who are doing this sort of thing. Now, that's hard to do. It's hard to find people that are, that are crazy enough to start a company, but, but it can be helpful because because then it becomes normal. Like it becomes normal that you're you're working seven days a week. It becomes normal that, you know, you're you're taking doing emails at nine o'clock, ten o'clock at night. I started hanging around a guy who who was worth two hundred million dollars about five years ago. And this dude would put up like seventy five thousand dollars in Christmas lights. And that's just insane to me. But but I thought, you know, if I can hang around a dude who's spending $75,000 on Christmas lights and that's normal to him, maybe it might help me level up. And it has. Like, it, like just hanging around people like that can really, like, grow and expand your perspective and your thinking and, and normalize things that, that may have been out of reach previously psychologically for you. Certainly has been the case for me. Mm. Now, this stuff's really hard to do. I mean, it's really hard to rebuild your social circle from the inside out. It's really hard to find successful people that, to hang out with that in a non-organic way. But if you can give yourself a goal to make like one new real relationship a year with somebody who's a level up or two above you, that can be helpful. And in the short term, start listening to these people, you know, who are two or three levels above you on YouTube, on podcasts, listen to audiobooks that they've written, and that can help fill in the gap between the social circle you have today and the people you really want to hang around. You know, you may have to like asynchronously, like I said, consume their content. If I had $5 for every single person that hit me up on LinkedIn and said, I just want to take you to coffee and pick your brain, you know, I, 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 I could, <laughs> I could. So I could give my company away, you know, so it's like, don't do that. But you want to grow these relationships organically, but it's going to be tough. It's going to take time. But in the short term, you can consume this kind of information asynchronously, be mentored asynchronously, because that's what I've done over the last decade to, to learn the stuff that I needed to learn. I love that. So, Brian, one of the things that I've noticed with some of the very super successful entrepreneurs that I've interviewed for the podcast or that I know personally, because I I know some very successful people, is that they're always very decisive. First of all, they don't sit on the fence a lot. And then the other thing that I notice is that they say no to things very quickly. 
So I'd love to talk about what you say yes and no to and whether you have any particular rules yourself or or just standards perhaps in terms of saying yes and no to things. For me, you know, the the ability to say no to almost everything is crucial. And that's a Warren Buffett thing is just to be able to say no to almost everything is key because the reality is that there's so few things that are good ideas and good uses of your time that you have to be discretionary about that. You really have to. So in a personal context, you got to be protective of your time. You really, especially if you're trying to, to operate at a high, high efficiency and a high level. And so for me, I really do try to say no to almost everything. But on the flip side is you do want to leave yourself open to some sort of to serendipity. You do want to leave yourself open to some good randomness. So there is a balance. You don't want to say no to everything because sometimes you can miss out on some serendipity. And so for me, I try to, I try to have a balance between the two. But when I'm trying to say yes to things, I'm really looking for as much evidence as I can. So if somebody wants to, somebody does want to meet for coffee, I'm really looking for evidence of, I don't know this person. How did they come to my social circle? What have they done? I'm looking for evidence of what they've done. Okay, well, they started this company and it looks like it's doing okay, or, or they have this exit or, you know, I'm really looking for evidence of what this person's done. So then I know it's a good use of my time. Or if I'm hiring somebody, I'm, I'm looking, you know, I'm, I'm trying to say no to, to, to 20 people for every one person we hire and I'm looking for evidence of what they've done. So I really, I really try to look at more of like, don't watch people's don't listen to what people say is watch their feet, watch their feet, not their mouth and really look at what people have done. Look at their track record and let that really guide my decision making for, for what I'm going to do, what meetings I'm going to take, what people I'm going to hire, what investments I'm going to make. And it's a simple thing, but a lot of times, man, even to this day, you know, I'll get, I'll get sweet talked. I'll get, I'll get caught up with a smooth talker and and realize, wow, this was, this was, this was a bad decision, you know? So it's, it's a simple thing that I, I try to hold true to. Yeah, that's really interesting. I I actually read a book recently about this. And in fact, it was quite an interesting book about uh, scammers. And uh, what it said is that we all have this mistaken idea that none of us are, that that we are not, we we are not actually going to be susceptible to, to scammers and con artists. But in fact, in the right environment, all of us, all of us can be because we all are social creatures, we're linked to one another, we're connected, and that we can be influenced. Absolutely, so So true. Yeah, sometimes hard, isn't it, to stay true to yourself and actually make make the the right decision. It's so true, and even in an interviewing context, like you interview people that you're going to hire for your company. And this is so critical. Your first two or three hires will make or break your company. And so you you interview people and you think, okay, I'm going to hire the person who interviewed the best. Well, guess what? The people that interview very well go on a lot of interviews. And so you don't necessarily <laughs> you don't necessarily want to hire the person that interviewed really well, you know, because they're going on a lot of interviews. And so maybe they maybe they they don't stick around places long or they get fired a lot or they're bouncing around or you know, it's not necessarily the person you want. And so there again, you're looking for evidence. What have they done? What are they doing? What are their hobbies? What 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 have they what have they done inside of a company somewhere? What's their track record look like? And that's almost matters twice as much as how well they interview. 
and not that necessarily it's because somebody interviews well they're a con artist, but it's along that same like trail like like line of thinking that we can all be duped and in, into making irrational decisions, and we have to be cogn- cognizant yeah. of that. That's right. Yeah. So so tell me, did you did you ever make the wrong hires in your business, or or did you do you feel as though you've had a very good instinct for people and that you've always You've always done quite well in that respect. I think everybody that's that's hired you know, more than one or two or three people, and maybe even just as few as those, have, have made bad hires. That's just part of the game. You're gonna make bad hires, and you can't beat yourself up when you do. But what you what you got to do is 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 the Mark Zuckerberg thing: hire fast and fire faster. And you realize that you know after a week, three four weeks, three months, that it's not working out. You, you got to cut cut these folks loose. Send them on their way to get to get on board somewhere else that's a better fit for them, and and put somebody else in. Yeah. A lot of times, and I've been guilty of this. You you get you get hooked up in this sunk cost fallacy, and you feel like you have so much invested in that person, and you know, and, and interviewing them, screening them, training them, you know, and and you 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 suffer fools, and that's a weak decision all the way around. It's, it's weak for you. It's weak for the company. It's weak for everybody else in the company and it's weak for that person. And you really do need to cut people loose. And it just, and this isn't a big company thing. This is if you, even if you have one employee and if it's not working out, you need, you need to get somebody else in that slot and figure out what, what went wrong, where make adjustments, correct them and move on. So yeah, hire fast, fire faster. Everybody makes bad hires. It's okay. It's going to happen. Just correct it when it does. Amazing. That's really, really strong. Thank you so much for that, Brian. Yeah. So, so in terms of your your company culture, and because you really you're talking about leadership as well in 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 that last um, point. So, so do you feel as though you have uh, developed as a leader since since the early days? Uh, have you got any help? Um, from outsiders to develop your own leadership skills? Or is this something that you feel as though, do you know what, this is just something that I have to learn to do and I'm going to do myself? You know, when you're starting a a new business and, you know, you're just solo, you don't have to worry about things like leadership. But as soon as you hire your first employee, guess what? Now you got to be pretty good at leadership. And you got to be pretty good at a lot of things. You know, you have to be 80-20 good at probably a dozen different things, and leadership's one of them. And understanding what the mm-hmm. difference between leadership and management are is important. And those two things get conflated a lot. And leadership is 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 you know management is doing things efficient efficiently and doing them well. And leadership is is doing the right things. And you gotta you gotta cultivate these skills. We're not born good leaders. We're not born good managers. But there again, you know, we can learn these things. We can go to conferences. We can go. We can watch everything on YouTube that we can around leadership. You know, think guys like John Maxwell who have been teaching leadership for thirty years. We can we can learn from them. We can listen to their books on Audible. We don't even have to read them. We can just listen to them. We can learn to become decent leaders and what that means. And and understand how to cultivate these characteristics in, inside of ourselves, and and understand that the company is the thing that's causing us to become a better leader. And how cool is that? You know, like this company, this little business that you have. It might be one employee, it might be a hundred. And for me, you know, I've had to learn how to become a decent leader over the years. You know, building my landscaping business to 150 people, and now Green Pal is 43 people, and 
And the, you know, I'm very different. I'm a very different leader today than I was five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And the business is kind of helping you evolve and, and grow and become a better manager, better leader. And culture is a big part of that. You know, that's one of the jobs as the, as the founder is to set the tone for the culture is to understand, Definitely. understand what the culture is and, and, and being kind of the steward of it and the protector of it. That's one of like the five most important things you need to be doing once you get beyond two or three or five people. And so what would you say if you had to describe your culture and how you protect your culture, how, how would you describe it, Brian? Yeah. So for, for us at Green Power, we're 40 something people. And for us, the culture is, 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 is aligned around a lot of people want to say values, but really more it's, it's virtues. It's, it's really like, what are we doing and what, you know, what, and how does, how do the values manifest themselves, you know, into the daily day-to-day practice? And so for us, Mm -hmm. our culture is very much a meritocracy, which is you get your stuff done. Nobody's going to be breathing over your neck. Nobody's going to be micromanaging you. Nobody's going to be laying out like daily check-ins for you. You get it done and, and there's, and that's it. And it's kind of like the, one of the best, one of the, the best examples of this type of, of culture that I, I've ever heard was, was this football player, American football. I was talking about when he went from college to the NFL. And when he went, when he was in college football, he, he said there was a, there was a uh, coach at practice that looked that when they did suicide sprints would sit there on the line and made sure you touched the line every single time because they instilled that level of discipline. And he said, then he said, when I got to the NFL, there was no coach. Everybody just touched the line. And, and so like that was there between, between college ball and football and, and pro ball was that there was no coach making sure that you touched the line, that that was the culture inside of the team was everybody touched the line and nobody even checked. And so that's, you know, that the standard as the founder that I set is like, you know, we, we touch the line. And I tell that story, you know, to every single person that comes, that comes on board. It's like with nobody's checking to make sure you touch the line in the suicide sprints, everybody touches the line because this is the NFL and that's what we expect here. And everybody expects that. And the minute somebody falls short of that, you know, we, we discuss it. We have a couple of warnings. But if you're constantly not touching the line, we, we, feel, we feel somebody else with your spot. Yeah, I really like that because that, as you said, that sets a high performance standard, doesn't it? it? Does. That people, yeah, people are indoctrinated into right from the beginning. And why shouldn't you expect a high performance? Because you're a high performing kind of guy that has built a high performing business. So you want high performers in it. Yeah, right? you don't have to have a huge company to expect high performance. You don't have to be no. you don't have to be like uh, Fortune 500 or you know to expect performance. You can expect performance in your five per, five person company. Matter of fact, it's probably easier to 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 set that standard in a smaller business. So let's go on to talk about GreenPal, Brian, because GreenPal is really a tech business, isn't it? It's an app. Yeah, absolutely. So GreenPal is like the Uber for lawn mowing. So started started mm-hmm. the business 10 years ago when after I sold my landscaping company, uh, me and two co-founders came up with the idea to that you should be able to push a button on your smartphone and order a lawn mowing service that, that, that didn't exist and that there was other ways, you know, you could, you could push a button and get food delivered, groceries delivered, order a car, but you can't get your grass cut. And I knew the lawn mowing business, knew the landscaping business, recruited two co-founders and we went to work and 
It was a lot harder than we thought it was going to be. The first two or three years were a slog getting the company going and getting the marketplace going. But we stuck it out. We didn't, we didn't give up. And little by little, we started making progress. And, and now here we are nine years in. We're a nine-year overnight success. We have uh, two or 300,000 people using the app doing multiple eight figures in revenue and, and we're profitable, which is, which is pretty rare for tech companies like ours. And, and, you know, I started the business thinking it was going to be a lot easier than it was. Here I am, second time founder, and I was still naive. And so that's why, you know, I am always caution, I'm always cautionary to new founders, like it's going to be harder than you think, trust me. And so this business was a lot harder than I thought it was naivete as an asset in the early days. But we stuck it out and, and we, <laughs> we've, got a, we've got a good, good marketplace going. Wow, that, that's really amazing. So tell us, Brian, what would you say if you had to rank your, your biggest challenges through those first, say, one to three years, what would you say they were, say, your top three challenges? Yeah, boy, top three is tough because there was probably a hundred. But one of the big challenges was navigating the transition from a blue collar entrepreneur, you know, running a landscaping business to one of a tech entrepreneur. So running a tech company. Yeah. And so I had, you know, my co-founders and I, we had to teach ourselves how to write software. We had to teach ourselves how to code, how to design software and how to sell and market software digitally. And it was tough. It took took almost three years for us to really make that transition to really understand how to do these things. And when you're starting a business, you're going to be doing three things at once. You're going to be working in the business, which is, you know, all the day-to-day stuff making the business happen. You're going to be doing three things. You're going to be working in the business, you're going to be working on the business, and you're going to be working on yourself. And so balancing those things uh, is difficult, especially in the early days, you're trying to do all three of these things yourself. And for me, you know, that was one of the challenges that I had to face starting GreenPal. I had to, had to work in the business, you know, building it, building the software, working on the business, setting the strategy, setting the processes and the routines and the standard operating procedures, and then working on myself, you know, learning how to code, learning how to design software, learning content marketing and things of that sort. So doing those three things at once are really, really challenging, but you got to do it. And that's, that's really why it's a seven day a week job. Yeah. So what do you see as your, the future of Green Pal now that you've grown it to, to this amazing level, Brian, what does the future hold? You know, when you, when you're running a company like this, it, it, Jeff Bezos has, has a quote, it's still day one. And it always feels like that. It always feels like day one. It always feels like it's the, it's the beginning. And for us, we really still feel like we're in minute one of day one of, of making this service ubiquitous in the entire United States and then in other parts of the world as well. And, and so for us, even though we're profitable and doing multi, you know, eight figures in revenue, we want to get to a hundred million and then a billion in revenue. And so we've got a long way to go. We're, we're a decade in. We probably got another decade or two until this thing is, is just installed in every, every town and nook and cranny where we want to be. And so we, we're, we're, we're having fun too. And I'm going to keep running this business as long as I'm having fun doing it. Oh, that's, that's amazing. So uh, what I wanted to get on to now, Brian, is really talking about your, your fitness and your martial arts practices, because I know that you're a super fit guy. That's obvious because you've got the physique. And that's clearly something that you've put a lot of dedication into as well. So a lot of entrepreneurs, when they're running businesses, they actually let their fitness 
split, don't they? So why did you not do that? And what is it about your physical practices, should we say, that help you in your business and life? Yeah, you know, I think these things are all intertwined. They really are. And and so for me, you know, you know, I think it was year three or four starting Green Pal, I had let my physical fitness, I had neglected it. And I was overweight and I felt like crap. And my co-founder said, signed up for a marathon. And I, th- I thought, well, hell, I'm going to try to run the marathon with him. And, and I set out on the training and I started learning about a lot of parallels between running a marathon and business ownership and, biz- and, and founding a business. Uh, and the two are really similar. In fact, running a business and starting a company is really a marathon in and of itself. You know, it's not sprints. It's really mm. taking the long view. And, and there was all these things just around discipline and consistency and, and little things that add up. And that, you know, when, when you're training for a marathon, I couldn't run like a mile when I started and, and, and ended up running all 26. And one thing I noticed, wow. uh, one little thing was like, you know, you see these goofy people when they're running out on the street and at a stoplight, they're jogging in place. And you don't understand in, until you, you're, you're training at that level that it's actually a lot easier to jog in place than it is to stop. And when you stop and you have to start again, and when the light changes, it hurts and it's hard, and you want to give up, you want to quit. And and business is, is a lot like that too. It's that, you know, it's the momentum, it's the keep moving forward, it's the not stopping, it's the consistency week in, week out. That's what adds up. And, and marathon training is a lot like that too. Now, I'm not a super big marathoner today, but I've, I've ran three or four, and, and there's a lot of parallels between that stuff and, and running a business. So fitness is a big part of my life. And, and I feel like if you can stay in top-notch shape, it can help you go the long haul in business. I've gotten into martial arts in the last few years as well. And there's a lot of parallels there too. You know, it's like you can't learn how to fight until you spar. And as silly as that sounds, like you think about somebody who wants to fight MMA, you know, go into the octagon and they want to compete in the octagon, but they've never sparred a day in their life. And how silly that might sound. Well, people do that in business all the time because you can't, you can't launch a business until you get something in front of the customer. And think of that almost as sparring with the customer. Like they're going to try your product, they're going to hate it, but you need that feedback and you need that feedback to learn to get it better and better and better. And that's the only way you're going to get that product better and get it and get it into the marketplaces to get it into the hands of customers. And you think about that as the same in martial arts as sparring. The thing I see about a lot of new entrepreneurs is that they don't, they just want to sit there and like work behind the laptop for six months and not get anything in the hands of customers. And that's like mm-hmm. an MMA fighter trying to go and fight his first MMA fight with never having sparred. And so there's these parallels between mixed martial arts and even fitness and bodybuilding and all this stuff that flow into business that I just love and that have really become evident to me over the last, I guess, decade. Yeah, I love that. And martial arts as well, it's very much about the mind, isn't it? It's about disciplining the mind, isn't it? This is what people say. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's really a lot of it is controlling your thoughts and also the discipline of just doing the things day in, day out. One of my favorite Mike Tyson quotes is, you know, the things you hate doing, do them like you love it. You know, if you hate getting up and running five hours or five miles, do it like you love it. If you hate going in there and, you know, writing a blog post, do it like you love it. If you can like really change your stuff, stuff's really hard. I'm not saying it's not, but if you can really reframe it 
it can help. And a lot of these physical things really are the same in business as well. It's a lot of principles that just kind of are ubiquitous. Do you know, I really love that. I really do. You've got some great quotes there, Brian. Do you collect these quotes or do you just memorize them? Because some of the quotes that you've come up with over the course of this interview have been amazing. Something about quotes that I really like, they help me make sense of things that are, are complicated and they help me really just kind of borrow the, 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 the wisdom of somebody who has done something mm. that I admire and really kind yeah. of just pack it up in a little suitcase and carry it with you and help you kind of like frame your, you know, it helps me frame my philosophy. There's probably a hundred quotes that I really like and have memorized that help me see the world, how I see it and see business, how I see it. And not that all knowledge and wisdom is in quotes, but it's a way to kind of like package up not a wisdom in a little suitcase and carry it with you is the way I look at it. Yeah. And I really, as I said, they've been absolutely amazing. They, they've really inspired me as well. So Brian, so what about your personal life, Brian? We've talked a, a lot about business, but I mean, how has your personal life evolved alongside your business over the last however many years it's been? A decade in on GreenPal, and so if I'm frank, the first five years, there was no personal life. There were no real good relationships okay. outside of the company. You know, I was living with my co-founders and it was, it was seven days a week and everything was going into getting that company going. And little by little mm -hmm. after we started getting enough revenue going where, where we could delegate a lot of the day-to-day -day stuff and delegate a lot of the, the heavy lifting, was I able to kind of have some balance and kind of overcorrect and enjoy life a little bit more. And now, you know, 10 years in, we're profitable and I've got a lot of smart people that work for the company and they're able to take a lot of things off my plate. My personal life looks a lot more healthy, you know, in terms of relationships and things like travel. You know, I love the travel. And it's one of the cool things about running a digital company now. You know, I'm able to run it from anywhere in the world. And so I do quite a bit of traveling. Mm -hmm. I travel several months out of the year going to seeing things I want to see and, and still, still able to keep the company going and still able to run it. So my personal life consists of business, fitness, family, traveling, and really trying to still learn and level up as much as I can. I, I'm always like, the thing about knowledge is like the more of it you get, the more you realize how stupid you are or how dumb you are. And you like, you just want to get more of it. It's like <laughs> the more I learn, the more I realize how much I don't know. And so I'm always still, you know, I'm reading at least one book a month, try to try to do more. And that's the cool thing about like, like business today is so much different than it was even five years ago or 10 years ago. There's always new information, always new philosophies, always smart people putting out stuff. I just love consuming that stuff. Yeah, well, all I can say, Brian, is this has been an absolutely fantastic interview. I've enjoyed every minute of it. And I know that you will have inspired our audience hugely. How lucky they are to have had all of those insights and, you know, your real experience at the coalface, which I think is, is your greatest gift to them because a, a lot of people might come onto a podcast like this and just gloss over the, you know, the reality of actually building businesses. So I really wanted to thank you and applaud you for your refreshing honesty and just telling it like it is, which I think people will find incredibly inspiring. So thank you so much for joining us, Brian. Jane, thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening in. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to rate and review my podcast as it will help me bring the power of connection to the world. I work one-to-one to help entrepreneurs ignite the power of authentic connection in their businesses and lives. I also help them accelerate their results through attracting and converting more of their ideal clients. And if this is something you'd like to do too, why not head on over to www.idealclientsuccess.com masterclass and I'll show you how.